Ladies and gentlemen, it's, uh, it's nice to be back. It's been such a long time. <laughs> I explained to, uh, at my talk at this time on yesterday at noon that, uh, that while I had been invited out here chiefly to talk about my book on the United Nations and the uh, various lessons I drew from the 10 or 12 year experience of working on ideas about UN reform, I was really willing to do uh, some extra talks. In other words, uh, apologies by Rick and others or uh, people here saying, we're sorry you're overworked, but it was those bastards who added on, not us, <laughs> it is not really necessary. I uh, wanted the chance to uh, talk about these two book projects that I'm just, just approaching now. I'm starting to draft a prospectus for both. I'm starting to think of the shape of a book. Uh, but uh, it seems to me best to try to find some audiences which would listen to the initial balloon going up rather than to shoot the thing down four years later so that it collapses in the English Channel or in the Normandy Bocage. So the, this is in like yesterday's lunchtime talk in the form of a trial balloon uh, and it's a very different topic. It's about the British imperialist writer, novelist, poet, polemicist, uh, activist, uh, Rudyard Kipling. Uh, this is not uh, the beginnings of a biography on Kipling uh, for two reasons. Uh, he continues to, he, he was at the time around the turn of the century and through the 20s, by far the most popular writer in the English-speaking world. It's very hard to convince our students today, you know, forget Virginia Woolf, forget Henry James, forget all of those guys who are now in the if you like, politically correct English and American literature canon. They would not be recognized on this walking down the strand. Kipling had difficulty in avoiding crowds. He shifted house from time to time. Uh, but he has also attracted attention from biographers, and they have been extraordinarily good biographers. From the early authorized one by Lord Birkenhead, a very substantial one by Charles Carrington, the Professor of Imperial History at Cambridge in the 50s. A wonderful recent one by David Gilmore. There's also um, the work by Angus Wilson, The Strange Ride of Rudyard Kipling. So I didn't see any point doing another 400, 500, 600 page biography of Kipling. What's more, I, I guess I like to have a a problem or a challenge or a strong argument put into a book at the beginning. Uh, many years ago, I think I may have told this many years ago to Jeffrey Parker, uh, when I was a young lecturer at the University of East Anglia, I was asked by a paperback publisher if I would write a, a history of the Royal Navy. Uh, that came to nothing because he simply wanted to give me a flat check for the manuscript, no royalties, and I thought that like the Royal Navy, uh, I should either sink or swim with the project, and therefore I wanted royalties. I was rescued by Corelli Barnett, who put me in touch with his agent, who put me in touch with people at Penguin UK, and they said, well, you know, there are histories of the Royal Navy, what's going to be different? And I said, actually, you know, I don't want to write a goddamn history of the Royal Navy again, It'll just be about admirals and but I am interested in the relationship between Great Britain's economic and trading and industrial rise and fall and its naval and commercial and overseas empire rise and fall, which is why it ended up not as the Royal Navy from 600 to 1975, but the rise and fall of British naval mastery. I wanted an argument in it. So I'm not trying to write official, authorized, large-scale or revisionist biography of Kipling. I'm trying to write a study of Kipling which would be an intellectual engagement with a, actually a very elusive character. Um, 
somebody who just is a lot more complicated than is ordinarily presented. This is the famous portrait by his uncle, uh, Burne Jones, um, just at the end of the century. Intense pince-nez glasses, the Kipling mustache. Uh, a man who uh, had a very long career. He doesn't die until March of 1936. It's uh, exactly the same month as the King Emperor George V dies, and therefore uh, Westminster Abbey has the uh, difficulty of arranging two stupendous state funerals, one for the King Emperor and then two weeks later for Kipling, who was accorded pretty well all the treatment that was granted to Alfred Lord Tennyson when he passed on, and Tennyson almost outshone Queen Victoria's funeral, and Kipling almost outshone King George V. Um, by that stage, although he was respected and in some ways being recovered by serious scholars, I could talk about that in a few minutes, by the stage of his death, and indeed in the 20s and 30s, he had faded somewhat away from the limelight. Uh, personal family tragedy had affected this very much. And um, what's more, the aftermath of the First World War and the shock and horror and revulsion of the stupidity of going to that war was such that any of those who had advocated robust, national, aggressive policies beforehand were kind of put in the doghouse. But even before then, there were a large number of people who disliked Kipling's tone, uh, who thought it was too jingoistic, it was too brash. His great pal Henry James fell out with him for a while uh, in 1898 at the publication of uh, Kipling's uh, verse Take Up the White Man's Burden, written, as some of you know, in his house in Brattleboro, Vermont, where he was for four years with his American wife, and he wrote it at the time of the American debate on the acquisition of the Philippines. So even in Edwardian periods, he was a controversial figure, partly because of his very controversial political writings. Um, the first person to have a go at Kipling, I think, was the caricaturist Max Beerbohm, who had a go at pretty well everyone, uh, rather like a cartoonist in private eye. Um, and uh, here's your, the first blast at uh, Kipling, uh, is by Beerbohm's cartoon, rather pale here, but uh, actually better there. And it's about Kipling grabbing his girl, his lady friend, Britannia, and taking a, going around blowing a trumpet. That's an imperialist horn which Kipling is blowing as he sways along Hampstead Heath with Britannia. But the more I read into Kipling, or the more I try to go back and look at things which seemed so simple and obvious in the poetry, uh, the more complicated he gets, which is why I have entitled this talk The Elusive Rudyard Kipling. Uh, I, I'm puzzled by lots of Kipling. Um, many of the poems, and I'll discuss a few, begin with what looks like an assertive jingoistic stanza or two, and then when you get down to the middle, it starts unfolding and changing, and you realize the guy's much more complicated and ambivalent about imperialism and war. Um, what do you do with uh, the many manifestations of genre? I mean, he's really unusual in this. He, he was, for many years, by clearly the most popular children's author. And in fact, he may well... Until Harry Potter came along, he probably kept that record when you think of The Jungle Book, of Kim, of uh, Puck of Pook's Hill, um, of uh, you know, a whole variety of these works where he, he, he writes them chiefly for his son and his daughter. Um, jungle Book, thanks to uh, you know, 
Disneyland has just goes on and on and on. Uh, and here's something which uh, really interests me, and I, I haven't worked it out yet, but it's the way I'm going provisionally. If you try to you know, look at his daily work pattern, or just to set his writings out in just a chronological spread, uh, which is actually impossible. I got in touch with the Rudyard Kipling Society of England, which is at his country house at Batemans, and I said, do you have a, like a printout or a list of what Kipling's writings? And uh, the secretary said, well, one of our members tried to do it in the 1950s, after reaching 7,000 titles, gave up and died. Uh, so you have to do the reconstruction yourself. But what do you make of a person who, in, say, 1900, while he's now back, he's back from his Indian days, he's back from his American days, he's bought this house in Sussex, uh, he's deeply involved thinking about issues of politics, he's writing children's books. So on a particular morning in uh, early 1900, a phone call will come in from the editor of the London Times. The news has just arrived of a massive shocking defeat to the British Army in the South African War on the Veldt. Uh, and could Kipling write a reflective or a memorial poem about that, a political poem? And he agrees to. And then his, his, his daughter recounts many years later Kipling had a very long study at Bateman's, and what he did was to just pace up and down because uh, almost all of his poems have a kind of punch or marching song to them. They have a very strong rhythm. They have very strong onomatopoeia. And so he goes up and up and down, and then the words start coming, the mixture of words from the English language, from the Old Testament, just start coming in. And then he sits down and types it. And then it goes in the lunchtime mail to the Times, where it will appear the next day to great sensation. After lunch, he will sit down and begin uh, drafting a new just-so story. Why the camel got its hump. Why the elephant got its trunk for his children. After dinner, he will go and grapple with the book which took him so much energy, uh, but his most famous of all, Kim. So what we're talking about, I know that we can look at um, you know, the great uh, musicologists of Haydn and Mozart who will say on one particular summer evening in one particular summer out at the Esterhazy estate, uh, Haydn started drafting the Haydn Nelson Mass, and then he switched to a string quartet number four, and then he went on to, um, you know, symphony number 92. But in literature, I don't think I know anyone, not even Shakespeare himself, who would go through such a variety of genres. And my question, and the question I'm asking myself, is are, are these totally compartmentalized worlds? Or is there actually a common message, a common Kipling view of life, a Weltanschauung about human character and nature and what you have to do and what you should not do, which is there in the Jungle Book and Kim and in the political poems to the Times and in, uh, the, even in the Just So stories? Is he addressing different audiences and readerships, though with the same message. Now let me, the re, so this explains uh, this very tentative chapter breakdown. Uh, it isn't quite chronological, but it, at least it starts at the beginning with Kipling in India. Born in India, writing about India, the first works are his tales from India, then it broadens out to the empire because in particular of his a deep fascination with South Africa, with his a friendship with Cecil Rhodes, with his going to South Africa increasingly for all of his winters to get away from the English winters, but it's, it's the empire and, and the navy, and still, still India. Then the children's literature, 
which I've been grappling with. And I put the children's literature, or is it that? Is it children's literature plus? <laughs> I was down um, seeing my two granddaughters last uh, late spring in Black Mountain, Chapel Hill, and we were coming through Asheville. It was a second-hand bookstore, and we went in. There was this wonderful edition of the Just So Stories, all illustrated, the 1950 edition. And when we got to uh, my son John's cottage and we were sitting there, my wife Cynthia was sitting on the sofa uh, with the two girls on each side of her peering in, and she was reading um, How the Elephant Got Its Trunk. And uh, when it was finished, Cynthia came across to me and said, you know, that essay is pure Thomas Hobbes. <laughs> Wait a minute, say it again. <laughs> it, it, if you look at it, she says it's pure Thomas Hobbes. It's, it's a life which is nasty, brutish. You have to do something about it. And if some other elephant gets a thing called a trunk which he can whack you with, then you'd better get a trunk pretty quickly yourself. And I thought, well, I've read a lot of Kipling by now, but I've never seen Kipling as Hobbes. Uh, England and the English. He was very, very profoundly English. It comes out most of all in Puck of Pook's Hill. But it's an England that he's worried about, concerned about, puzzled about, an England that might be losing its heritage, its legacy, and that drives him desperately. Then the clouds of war. Kipling is interesting to me as a scholar of the Anglo-German antagonism because he's probably the first person in England possibly apart from Salisbury, who thought the Kaiser could be a menace. And he's already writing about the Kaiser and the dangers of this volatile, airhead, dangerous person in charge of the most powerful army in Europe. Uh, many scholars think that when in Take Up the White Man's Burden there is the line about lesser folks without the law, it is not about the lesser colored folks in the colonies. It's about Wilhelm, Bülow, and the lesser folks who do not follow the law of Western civilization. Um, he, he writes increasingly in the 1900s and after 1910 about the Navy. falls passionately in love with the Navy, which obliges him by taking him a new you know, super battleships around the Isle of Wight, and then he write another poem about the Navy. Um, uh, and then he anticipates a war. And the war, uh, the coming of the war, the German invasion of Luxembourg and Belgium, uh, the losses in the war, just harden his attitude. It's hardened even more in uh, spring of 1915 when his only son, John Kipling, who should not have been in any fighting service, whatever, since he was almost blind, uh, goes missing in his first battle at Luce on the Western Front. And that just hardens his utter dislike of the Kaiser and of things German. And it's, I found a late copy, uh, late in Kipling's uh, writings on opinions and letters, in early 1934, Kipling's uh, saying that... Uh, Adolf Hitler is going to be the greatest menace we faced. So the clouds of war, both before and during and after. Memorialization, I'm going to talk about that. His work in memorializing his son, but also the other young men who had died in the battlefields by joining the Imperial War Graves Commission. Uh, I'll explain that as well. Let's just remind ourselves of some of the works of this guy. Here's some of the early ones, Plain Tales from the Hills. He, he was writing at his English public school. He was born in, uh, born in India, came back as, as a boy at an English public school, which he didn't much like. Um, went back to India, was in, editing the Northern Star, and he was writing these Plain Tales from the Hills. And he's a sort of pre-runner of uh, sort of sort of pre-runner I don't think they're in the same league 
of Robert Kaplan and Max Boot, the imperial grunts, the guys on the ground, the Sergeant Three, the Sergeant McIlvaney, the Gunga Dean. These are the people who make the empire and keep the empire, not the dreadful liberal politicians back home. Uh, then, as early as 1894, The Jungle Book. I'd love to know how many copies that has sold worldwide and in so many translations since 1894. By this stage, especially by The Jungle Book, he becomes a person of completely independent means. Um, then the great novel the novel of inquiry and search and self-realization, Kim. Then uh, on England and the English, this one. Uh, I've just been rereading it for the first time in about 40 years or so, 45 years. I don't know if you know it, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it's absolutely terrific. There are these two children, boy and girl. It's clearly Kipling, son and daughter. They, it's an English summer. They go up from the country house. They go up in a glade in the hills above them. It's clearly above Batemans. And they're bored to hell, and they're sort of playing word games, and they, they are, have been trying to reconstruct Midsummer Night's Dream, and suddenly there's a rustle in the grass, and out comes a wizened little creature with big ears um, who identifies himself as Puck. Uh, the hill in Sussex is called Puck's Hill, but that's a corruption of the older one. It was Puck's Hill. He introduces himself as somebody who has been there living on the hill since well before the Romans, well before the Bronze Age. Um, the Puck is a play back to the Puck of medieval legend and of, of course, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, he, he's described in terms which look very, very similar to Tolkien's description of The Hobbit, of Bilbo Baggins. And, of course, Tolkien adored Kipling for his use of language, as his introduction of all sorts of um, Norse, Anglo-Saxon words into his own writings. So Puck sits the children down and tells them a story about, and he talks about the, 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 the life of the ancient bronze men, and he talks about the coming of the Romans. Here's a wonderful story about a legionnaire of the 29th up on Hadrian's Wall in the north of England, looking out as in the frost and rain of December and wishing he was back uh, in Sicily where his regiment or his legion had been recruited from. There are other, it, and he takes you through a, a story of England via a series of tales. Uh, the children run up excitedly each day and they sit there and what, some days he doesn't come, some days he does come and they tell him another story. Um, at the end, there's many, many more. At the end of his uh, days he tried to write an autobiography. It's got something in it, but it's only got something in it. Uh, you get more out of the private papers, the letters, the interviews that Carrington and Birkenhead did with his, his daughter. But the range is astonishing. Uh, the language interests me. I said before that a large number of the political poems just give offense and are regarded simplistically and dismissively because you look at the first couple of stanzas. Um, here is probably one of the most obvious. Uh, I've moved to the middle stanzas of Take Up the White Man's Burden. Um, at this stage, Kipling is swinging away from saying, take it up, you've got broad shoulders, you can do it. He, what he's saying is, um, when you get in there, when you get into Fallujah and Tikrit and Baghdad and elsewhere, you are going to find that you're going to get blamed. You're going to get blamed. People will be saying, why did you upset us? Why did you come here? You can see this reference to the Israelites 
complaining to Moses in the desert? Why did he take us away from our loved Egyptian night? In other words, you're probably bound to go in there because of your imperial duties and everything else, but when you get in, don't think it will be a pancake. It will actually show you the ambiguities, complexity, and problems of imperialism. Uh, he, he was, as I said, very, very interested in and full of praise for those who maintained the empire. He was a great, great friend of Cecil Rhodes uh, and actually was at, at Rhodes' side when he dies in Groot Schur in, uh, in the Welt on the Transvaal in 1902. Um, but he thought, to him there was a difference between those who were out there keeping things going, maintaining the heritage, and those back home who were talking about uh, class warfare, uh, new taxes, concentration inward rather than outwards, and uh, th this alarmed him. He thought that a, a generational cultural ideological change was spreading over uh, Britain and the Empire, but it's particularly in his own England, and that uh, people were going to say, we give up, uh, we're not interested, forget about history. In 1905, the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar, a whole group of imperialist writers come together to produce a wonderful big collection, The Empire and the Century. Uh, the most famous essay in it is by the great observer, editor for 30 years, J.L. Garvin, and has the most famous sentence of that book. Uh, remember, it's the 100th anniversary of Trafalgar. Garvin, it's on the, the maintenance of empire. It's about 75 pages long. And if anything influenced uh, the rise and fall of the great powers, it was probably this essay. The first sentence of the essay is, Will the empire which is celebrating one centenary of Trafalgar still be around in a hundred years' time? Question mark. And then he goes on to talk about the main threats being how on earth this small island can preserve itself in the face of the overwhelming technological industrial transfer changes which are enhancing the massive power of countries like Germany, uh, the United States, fast-growing Japan, fast-growing, though somewhat limping, uh, Imperial Russia. And Kipling is asked to write uh, a poem as a preface to the empire in a century. And so he writes this one. It's, um, it's clear that, incidentally, uh, Rake and Jeffrey, I brought along as backup um, PowerPoint discs for all three of the talks I've given. Uh, uh, I'm just going to leave them here. If, any, if you want to download them, if you want to put them on a website, if any of you want to use them for teaching purposes, uh, feel free. I stole them from everywhere else. There's no reason why you shouldn't <laughs> steal them. Um, you can tell that this is one of those poems that he did while pacing at Bateman's. It has a really strong rhythm, a really strong, um, really strong Old Testament. Uh, Kipling was never much for the New Testament. There's too much turning of cheek and looking the other way, etc. Was, Kipling wasn't much for that. But I mean, looking at, um, and it's really he's saying, how can you, you were past this heritage, and how can you walk away from it and uh, disgrace your fathers? And you can see when you, if you start to try to read it out loud, uh, and then you get the sense of the onomatopoeia and the biblical rhythm. This, wherefore through them is freedom sure, wherefore through them we stand. From all but sloth and pride secure in a delightsome land. And he's, he's saying, you have to follow suit. You have not to give away, just by your sloth, the heritage. Other times, uh, he was less solemn. 
There are certain people around Yale who believe that this is the Whiffenpoof song. Uh, we are poor little lambs who have gone astray. It comes straight from barrack room ballads. Uh, British army officers were singing this in their army messes and in various uh, alcoholic establishments on the Western Front in 1917 and 1918 when they were joined by American army officers and American flyers. And so this was a, it's a very rousing late evening drinking song, uh, a little maudlin, but it was borrowed by some people who were Yaleys. They brought it back to New Haven. They added on the first part about the tavern down at uh, Maury's, and there he have it. You have it. Uh, it I find it uh, kind of interesting. Kipling is popping up all over the place. I should say that that those stanzas uh, in the central part of a white man's burden about the hate of those he guard. This is now circulating in the, uh, in the Marine Corps in Iraq. Unsurprisingly. Then there were serious ones, even more serious. When his son, John, went missing and Kipling spent a near fortune trying to find him because they never found a body. There was a report a few years ago that they'd identified it, but it wasn't the case. Uh, he couldn't write about that, and I think he felt enormously guilty because his son John was under ter terrifying pressure. Every one of the other young men of his age was going volunteering. He was a father who kept writing things like the heritage, kept telling Kim to be strong, kept telling Mowgli he had to leave the jungle and go to the world of men. So how could he not? So he, he applies to join the Navy, and uh, his blindness or near blindness makes it impossible. So Kipling then puts pressure upon his old buddy, Lord Roberts of South African and Kandahar fame, and Roberts is the uh, colonel-in-chief of the Irish Guards. And so simply pulling rank, young John Roberts gets young John Kipling into the Irish Guards as a second lieutenant. He's trained for a couple of months. He's sent over to the Western Front. Uh, they go forward in the Battle of Luce in 1915, and uh, he's never seen again. So he can't write directly about John. And instead, about six months later, he, he writes a poem about my boy Jack. Clearly, Jack is John, but it's about somebody who is lost at sea. And the, the grief uh, runs through. I, I mentioned that I have another strand of Kipling to deal with, which is the political controversialist. Um, he, he did gravitate towards the arch-imperialist, so it was fairly easy since he was an arch-imperialist, the anti-Germanist since he was an anti-Germanist. He also was uh, appalled at the idea that, uh, that the uh, various revolutionary strands in Irish politics would lead to Irish home rule or complete Irish independence. So he became a very staunch supporter of Carson and the Ulster Unionists and gave many a speech on behalf of the, of the Ulster Unionists, of the Orange Men. Uh, you can see how Max Beerbohm got his cartoon fairly easily uh, from, from this snap of him addressing a large meeting of Ulster volunteers uh, in the midst of a crisis from 1912 to 1914 in which many observers thought that the United Kingdom would break into civil war, first in Ireland and then spread across the Irish Sea. Let's come back to your duty to his son John, to, pay, to paying testimony to those who serve or those who have served. By 1917, the war cabinet 
in London was aware that apart from winning the war, which they then feared they were losing both in the Atlantic and on the Western Front, apart from that they had a problem of how to treat the remains of close to a million soldiers of Britain and the Empire which had died in foreign fields. They had their British military cemeteries scattered across the globe from the the late 17th century onwards. They're in little shady places in Caribbean islands and Jamaica, etc. There's about 45 British military cemeteries in this country from the Indian Wars and the Seven Years' War. Uh, But what do you do when it's not just you know, 25 fusiliers or men from a drowned frigate in the uh, memorial cemetery in Antigua. What do you do when you're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, many of them lost? So they set up in 1917 a remarkable institution called the Imperial War Graves Commission. When Imperial went out of fashion, it nimbly changed its name to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. It exists today. It has one of the most wonderful websites I've ever seen. It's paid for by the treasuries, the British Treasury and the treasuries of the Dominions and quite a number of the other now independent but colonial governments. And they arrange for the local upkeep. Uh, It supervises 2,200 military cemeteries across the globe. No less than 55 in Iraq alone around Kut where a very large British army uh, was simply not starved to death, ran out of water supplies in 1915-16. Kipling was asked to go on the Imperial War Graves Commission, and he accepted at once. Another person who accepted was uh, the great Edwardian uh, architect Edwin Lutyens, Lutyens had become famous in late 19th century England for those extraordinary country houses, small country houses like Hestercombe and others where he worked with Mrs. Gertrude Jekyll, probably the best landscape gardener in modern times, and they created these wonderful houses with all with vernacular stone and English oak and steeped gardens and uh, um, quite, quite beautiful. And then Lutyens got a commission in 1910 to join Baker out in India to design the new imperial capital of New Delhi. The capital of the Raj was being shifted uh, from Bombay up to Delhi, but not to Old Delhi, teeming as it is with all its sacred cows and dung and elephants, etc. It was to be over the crest of the hill from Uh, Old Delhi, there was to be built New Delhi, and it was to be imperial and classical Roman. And if you've ever been into Delhi, and then ask your taxi driver to take you up the hill, it's quite astonishing because you don't see these enormous imperial buildings until you crest over the hill. Then there's a long esplanade towards it. It was a design which... uh, uh, Adolf Hitler and his architect Speer adored, and if you see photographs in Speer's inside the Third Reich, even as Bomber Harris is blowing Berlin to bits, uh, Hitler and Speer down in a bunker with cardboard cutouts, intending to build an imperial capital that would be at least twice as big as Lutyens in New Delhi. Then he is asked to join, Lutyens is asked to join the uh, Imperial War Graves Commission, and to design most of the important uh, war memorial physical buildings themselves. Uh, The Menin Gate, the uh, design at uh, Gallipoli for the Anzac troops. And Kipling's job is to uh, find find, uh, a phrase or two which would capture the sense of sacrifice and memory. The one I've shown you here is the most famous of all the war memorials because it, because it is the one to the, to the unknown dead or the glorious dead. It's the simple one, bang in the middle of Whitehall, outside Horse Guards Parade. They decided they were not going to have some big, glorious, ornate, it was going to be a very, very simple plinth there with the, uh, the, 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 the steeped, uh, walls coming up. Uh, Kipling, went to 
guess where, the Old Testament, went to Ecclesiastes. Their name liveth forevermore. It was, you know, as simple as that. I was on a Yale alumni trip. I won't make Jeffrey jealous by detailing everything, but uh, we did, I did persuade the cruise ship to land at uh, Silver Bay, where the New Zealanders came uh, on shore in 1915. I went up to the beautifully maintained New Zealand military cemetery. Um, the story of how we persuaded so many people all across the world that this was a nice thing for them to do, but the Turks especially uh, really take it seriously. And there, underneath the names of all of the New Zealand troops, was their name liveth forevermore. This was his further memorialization. Kipling had an on-off relationship with uh, the Irish as he had with the United States. If the Irish or the United States were with England, that was fine. If they weren't, they were cowards not entering the Great War having Easter revolts and all of that stuff. But remember, some of Kipling's greater heroes in the plain tales from the hills are the, these Irish surgeons, sergeants and surgeons, and uh, Irish engineers and Scottish engineers. And then he turns against Ireland because of the political scene. And then he realizes that when John Kipling led his little platoon over the uh, top of the trench, uh, he was leading... Uh, 10 or 14 men of the Irish Guards who also perished. So he decides to write a two-volume history of the Irish Guards in the Great War. And it's kind of interesting because he slips into about chapter 15 or so, uh, also killed at Luce was Second Lieutenant John Kipling, last seen heading towards you know, this particular clump of forest. That's it. This is just a final scene. Kipling with the king uh, as they go to visit the completion of the last of the great war memorials that stretch across northern France and Belgium. Um, there he is, a complicated person, ladies and gentlemen, and my only relief is that uh, I come late on this, but I'm definitely not the only person who has found Rudyard Kipling complicated. I just, before I came, put together a number of names. Um, Julian Bender was a French uh, writer who, in the 1920s, attacked the pro the belligerent, pro-war, aggressive, social Darwinist sort of the Italian futurist, the German pan-German league, the Croix de Guerre, and all of those bodies which Bender asserted had poisoned the liberal intellectual atmosphere of the mid-century and turned people's mind towards conflict. The only English name mentioned in Bender's classic book, Le Trahison des Clercs, that is, we translate it as the betrayal of the intellectuals. The only English name is Kipling. Uh, so this is what I meant when I said that he was, by the time he was in retirement in the late 20s, and so he's, he's under attack and blamed as one of those warmongers and jingoists. Then an astonishing thing happens. T.S. Eliot, then a director of Faber and Faber, himself trying to pound out verse, as in the wasteland and other things like that, or Little Giddy, T.S. Eliot just starts reading Kipling's verse. And so he, he produces, and Faber and Faber allows him to, this wonderful book called A Choice of Kipling's Verse. And he writes an essay. T.S. Eliot writes an essay in praise of Kipling's verse. Um, by the time Orwell has returned from Burma and is involved in uh, Spanish Civil War, Labour Party politics, anti-fascist campaigns, etc., Orwell feels he has to grapple with Kipling. He, he cannot not grapple with Kipling. And so he sits down and tries to, tries to understand 
uh, Kipling. He, he really admires Kipling's command of a language, just as Eliot did. That's what was the common link. But of course, he doesn't like Kipling, the imperialist. And Orwell has a wonderful, long set of pages called Good Bad Books, or Good Bad Authors. And I think you can guess what this means, right? Their writing is powerful. Their poetry is terrific. Their images, their language is uh, nothing matches them. This is one of the finest wordsmiths since Shakespeare. And yet he's bad for writing about these imperialists, this need to uh, be in charge of a quarter of the globe, standing firm, etc., etc. A little later on, I was describing this to an American uh, literature colleague of mine, and he said, did Lionel Trilling ever write about Kipling? I said, no, no, I don't think so. And then I went and Googled Lionel Trilling and Rudyard Kipling, and here's a lovely essay by Trilling where he's engaging with Kipling. Marguerite Lasky comes in to do uh, English history through Kipling's eyes. Kingsley Amos writes a biography of Kipling. Irving Howe has an essay on Kipling. Uh, Angus Wilson writes a quirky biography of Kipling. Um, Kipling has been absorbed into the big debate on Orientalism, on subalterns, especially since most of the people who invented uh, the theory of subalterns do not realize that subalterns originally were junior officers in the British Army. They were not oppressed Indians or anything else like that. The subalterns were the junior officers and the NCOs that Kipling praised so much. So I stopped there at, at one, giving us uh, some time for Q&A. Uh, I hope I've conveyed to you the sense of uh, kind of intrigue and interest I've been developing in this person because uh, the more I learn about him, the more his name pops up, uh, the more complicated the elusive Mr. Kipling gets. And therefore, the more frustrated I get when he's simply described uh, by Niall Ferguson and Empire or Colossus or something like that. And I feel like saying, well, you know, I see a lot more in Kipling than this. And why, why am I seeing more when he's being portrayed in such weird ways and has been since the 1920s? I'm not trying to whitewash Kipling. I think he, he was a racist, but not, not a biological racist by any means. He wouldn't understand what that meant. Um, I think he was in many cases intolerant. In other places, he was extraordinarily generous. He was blind in many respects, and he was insightful beyond belief in other respects. So I'm not coming along with, you know, a straight alpha grade for Rudyard Kipling, but I am interested in trying to uh, do an intellectual exploration of the different worlds of Kipling and whether at the root of it these are not different worlds, but there is a person who has from very early on in his life a idea that the basic things matter and the basic things are honesty, truth therefore, um, steadfastness, loyalty, uh, inheritance, and purpose. If you get them right, the empire will be preserved and England will stand tall. If you get them wrong or you exhibit characters totally different from that list which I just gave you, like Kaiser Wilhelm, then you get yourself and everybody else into trouble. So I'm beginning to think of developing an argument that Whatever you're looking at in the Kipling uh, oeuvre and at any one of the types of writing he did, even in a children's writing, there's something there which is kind of powerful and basic to uh, Kipling's Weltanschauung. Let's see if I have provoked any questions before I run away to the delights of Columbus and Pennsylvania airports. <laughs> or Philadelphia airports. Kate.
he, he exchanged letters with the imperial intellectuals, such as Amory, but he detested society. Uh, he um, really disliked it. It's interesting that he turned down honor after honor. I mean, he is not Sir Rudyard Kipling. He's not Lord Kipling of this or that or the other. He turned down honor after honor. Um, I think at the end of his days, he accepted us uh, being made an uh, order of merit, which is a very select group, a bit like um, the members of the French Pantheon. It's, it's for your intellectual and cultural lifetime achievement. Uh, he rather hated coming into London. Um, and the poem which I said he was pacing up and down and writing the day after the news came in of uh, disasters in South Africa called the Islanders is where he has his famous lines attacking the British upper classes for their obsession with sports, society, this and that, and not keeping strong. Not, that's where the flannel fools before the wicked and the muddied oafs before the goal line comes from. He's, they're too busy playing cricket, having afternoon tea, getting themselves muddy with Yorkshire rugby. And uh, he didn't like it. Uh, he felt much more at home in India, not in Viceregal Lodge, but out at some more distant place. So uh, he was a misfit in a large amount of uh, Edwardian and later society. Kate, did you have it? No, that you didn't. I thought it was a second hand up here. Well, never mind. Seeing, seeing double, Kate. In view of your topic, there's an elephant in the room. He was born in 65, and by 35, he was talking about the white man's burden as if he was my age. Where did he come from? Who were his people? He was, of course, not alone among English youth in the mid to late 19th century being born in India since uh, they were less the uh, offspring of the military but of the whole set of merchants, tree planters, engineers, Indian civil service. Um, his father was one of those. Uh, he had, a, I think, an Indian nanny. He picked up a lot of a street language and dialect there. In fact, I think that he picked up so much that his parents decided he'd better get back to England, otherwise he would go native, which is why he gets his revenge on that by creating Kim uh, or Mowgli. Um, so it's a service family. It's a business family. But it has links, this is maybe where your question pertains, he has l some links, uh, either through his wife or through his uncle, to late Victorian uh, upper middle class intellectuals, writers, painters, the, uh, the uh, we began with the portrait uh, by Burne Jones. Um, which is done in the late 1890s. So it, uh, it's, he's definitely not aristocratic. It's a professional, committed middle classes with a broad sense of, of reading. Uh, and, uh, he's obsessed about writing. As you can tell, anybody who has written, writes 7,000 pieces in his lifetime is obsessed about writing. Starts early on and uh, has a talent for just sitting and putting things down. But you wouldn't, I think this gets back to the question. He's, when, when Curzon went out to India as a viceroy, he's coming from an ancient uh, family of aristocrats with vast country estates, a gigantic palace at Kedleston, etc. Kipling is not of that. He's more of the background of the service family which itself was peopled and serviced the entire empire, whether it was in South Africa, India, Persian Gulf, or elsewhere. Yes, please. I was wondering how he saw himself in the literary circles of his time, those he associated with and liked to be, those he didn't like, he was a 
No. Uh, I think he, uh, the very few literary figures we would recognize that uh, he was in correspondence with and, and wrote to. Um, despite the tiff over Take Up the White Man's Burden, uh, he soon reestablished a friendship with Henry James. That's an interesting one. His fellow imperialist writer, uh, Ryder Haggard, uh, and he kept up a very lengthy correspondence. There's actually a very interesting collection of, Kip of letters of Kipling to and from uh, Ryder Haggard. Um, of other writers, uh, not much in the books. He wrote, I should say, he wrote so frequently to Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, they, were, they were bonded a great deal. And... Uh, Carrington suggests that uh, when um, when Cecil Rhodes died in 1902, uh, Kipling transferred his affection for this man of action, man of empire, from Rhodes to T.R. And then they, they keep up this correspondence all the way through. They talk about international politics rather than sometimes the history books they're working on. Uh, he gets disgruntled with TR because the U.S. doesn't come in the war in 1914, and then they, they make it back up again, of course. But he's, he's not a kind of familiar scene at Hampstead Heath or in Bloomsbury in this period. He actually does prefer more being a, a, by himself and having a very select number of uh, correspondents. Yes? Is your interest in Kipling... Attempted reflecting or thinking about how you see our present involvement, uh, our present American imperial involvement in the Middle East or generally? Uh, is Kipling telling us something or telling you something about us? I think that's a fair question to ask. Um, not particularly. I mean, I've had ideas about doing something on Kipling for a very long time. Um, it's uh, it's almost a distraction that this, particularly this present war in Iraq, has sent the number of entries on Rudyard Kipling, uh, White Man's Burden, etc., on Google, up by millions and millions and millions. Uh, the, what I'm proposing to do could do without it. Uh, and I don't think I'm going to spend much time, if at all. Uh, I mean, it's, it's far, if I manage this book, it would be far better to let readers think, you know, is this a distant echo, rather than to turn it into some political thing. Uh, I'm going to debate Neil Ferguson next week in, in Kansas, and um, chiefly on was the world war a good thing or not or was it inevitable or not I can't remember what I'm debating him on <laughs> but um, you know he, he in, in some of his recent writings and particularly his articles his op-eds in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere <clears throat> he's borrowing lavishly Kipling as a as a, as a kind of uh, weapon to bang Americans on the head, whether the Americans are neoconservative Americans or whether they're liberal Americans. He's, he's arguing, as he's done in his last two books, that you really are an empire um, and you, you just have to admit it instead of running away from it. But unfortunately, you don't have the imperial stamina, so you're going to muck things up in any case. And so he's, he's pulling in bits of Kipling to almost tease or provoke or annoy. I, I don't think... Uh, uh, that's that's not my purpose. I, for many reasons, I could do without the present war in Iraq. Um, but I don't think that I, I'm going to be using it as uh, a way into a critique of contemporary policies. Yes? Uh, he meets an American lady in uh, London. Um, they get married. Uh, he's a bit unsettled. He's also 
As I said, he could hardly walk down the Strand without people coming after him. By the time he got back home with his reputation of the plain tales of the Baragoon ballads and then with the coming of um, the Jungle Book, so by uh, 1895, 1896, he's looking for escape somewhere. The particular house he has at that time is, is not very attractive to him. In any case, his new bride wants to go back to the States. So they go there. The house is there, incidentally, David, in, in, um, in Brattleboro, Vermont. You can visit it. It's open as a small Kipling museum. Um, it's where he wrote quite a bit of Kim before he came back. It's where he wrote, obviously, to take up the white man's burden. Um, he had bought the land from a neighbor and a house and the land from a neighbor and they, only they had, I think the story's complicated, had access down the road to the land and then the neighbor went kind of nuts and eccentric and they quarreled and broke up and Kipling felt he was not getting the peace that he had desired. So after he was there almost four years and then went back to, to England. Um, he, he did have a number of uh, American friends. I mentioned Henry James and, and T.R. certainly. But you know he wasn't one to be drawn to Washington. I'm not even sure if Kipling ever went to Washington. I mean, I don't see why people should go to Washington these days either, but that's just personal prejudice. Uh, wait a minute. You had a... This may well be, given my flight times, uh, the last question. So make sure you cover all the grounds which... I haven't got to uh, where Kipling stands politically. Jenny might know this. By the time the Indian National Congress was on the move and by the time Churchill had come out in such a vehement way against independence for India and uh, the criticisms of the arch-conservatives and imperialists against the uh, Government of India Act, which in the mid-30s was allowing for provincial Indian rule, not top Indian rule, but some f and moving towards dominion status. I, I haven't looked at that. It, I mean, Kipling's attitude to um, the peoples of the empire, and I'm therefore not talking about the Canadians or the New Zealanders, but the, the colored peoples of the empire, whether in Africa, India, or beyond, is it just so difficult to, to get a hold of. I mean, the Gunga Din is, is not about the superiority of the white man, it's about the, the three sergeants. Can it really keep up with their water carrier? He's a better man than them. Uh, somebody made a remark uh, to a friend of mine a few days ago about uh, the fuzzy wuzzies, uh, which was an uh, English commonplace uh, uh, slang word for... Um, long-haired Africans or Arabs or whatever, and it, it comes from a Kipling poem. Uh, but when you look at the Kipling poem, the fuzzy wuzzies are the, uh, the warrior tribes of the upper Sudan, and uh, they managed to break through an English regimental square, which is pretty well impossible to do, and so Kipling writes, he, he, he calls them fuzzy wuzzies because of their appearance, but he says, you know, we have fought strong tribes across the globe, the so Pasan, the Zulu, the Ashanti, this and that, but we've never ever fought anybody as tough and resilient as the fuzzy wuzzies. So, so do you criticize him for inventing this funny name, or do you look at what he's saying and... Uh, and he's kind of doffing his hat in uh, testimony to... But, but you see, if I can just go on for one more minute before we run, it's because Gunga Din keeps the faith, it's because the northern tribes of the Indian subcontinent 
the Sikhs, the Gurkhas, the Punjab regiments are the strongest and the most consistent and the most loyal. It's because the Fuzzy Wuzzies are the bravest warriors that 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 drives him into admiration because it comes back to this sense of character, of courage and steadfastness, which he can see across races and across continents and uh, across languages. Uh, I've, let me... I'm leaving with my title, The Elusive Mr. Kipling, right? Uh, because I, all of those questions which have come today and which I'm going to get many more of um, are ones I have to grapple with and produce answers to, and I'm not yet fully com confident I'll get answers to all of them, but I'll make them up.